Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Paula Cole. The 1997 Best New Artist Grammy winner rose to prominence with her self-produced second album, This Fire, which spawned two massive hit singles, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, a top 10 hit that earned three Grammy nominations, and I Don't Want to Wait, which was used as the theme song for the show Dawson's Creek. Subsequent albums explored a range of stylistic ground, earning Cole critical acclaim and an eventual place on the faculty at the Berklee College of Music. She was the first woman in history to earn a Grammy nomination for Producer of the Year with no male collaborators. The BMI Pop Award winner has a total of seven Grammy nominations and continues to write and release new music. Her most recent album is American Quilt. Part One Well, Scott, today we have our conversation with the uh, amazing singer-songwriter Paula Cole. Yep. And most people may know her from her song, I Don't Want to Wait, theme song from Dawson's Creek, or Where Have All the Cowboys Gone, Um, big radio hits in the 90s. Um, But, you know, I actually kind of knew who Paula Cole was before that because I was a big Peter Gabriel fan, and I had the double CD Secret World Live album. I remember you having that when we were in high school. Yeah, and there were some duets on there, like one that he had done with Kate Bush uh, right. originally, and, and she kind of played the Kate Bush role on the record. And yeah. um, there was some Sinead O'Connor parts, I think, on another mo- more recent song he'd done that she sang. And he introduced her, Paula, you know, before she sang her part. Right. Um, so I kind of looked in the liner notes. I was like, oh, Paula Cole. That's that's this woman singing with Peter Gabriel. And so her name seemed familiar to me when, when she hit the airwaves. Um, yeah. And she talked with us about that and about that career trajectory. Um, and it got me thinking about some other artists who followed that similar path of starting out as backup singers and then becoming much bigger names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Sheryl Crow is probably one that comes to mind, which yeah. interestingly is is kind of a similar time frame that Paula emerged. But Sheryl Crow started out um, singing background vocals for a lot of people staying. And, uh, but the one that, that really is she's well known for and there's photos of her uh, is touring with Michael Jackson. Right. Um, which is like, that's a pretty good, that, that's, that's quite a, a gig, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and it, it seems a little incongruous with her musical style as a solo artist, doesn't it? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely has uh, more kind of that rootsy, yeah. you know, folky kind of rock thing, um, which is uh, different than Michael Jackson. I always laugh when like, um, I feel like when artists are talking about the trajectory of their career and you know you'll say like well you know how did you how did you get your first record deal and it's like well you know i grew up in missouri and i started playing guitar as a kid and joined a band in high school and then i i moved to la and i started touring singing backing vocals for michael jackson and then you're like yeah wait hold on like what? how did that happen? yeah how did you get to that yeah. like what well, that the, that's always uh i always laugh when when people are kind of telling their uh you know career story and it's just a huge like wait a minute yeah <laughs> that's not normal that Big doesn't happen here. every Day. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I think when, when I watched like, you know, a giant Michael Jackson, you know, tour on, on uh, old DVD or something like that, my tendency is to think that the backup singers are just kind of content. You know, you've got a great job. You sing backup for Michael Jackson. That should be fine for you forever. Um, right. And then you realize, no, 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 everyone's got these aspirations and are probably writing songs. And some of the backup singers that you see on stage are likely better singers than the artist who's up there behind the mic in front. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I remember that movie that came out, uh, I think around 20, 20 Feet from Stardom. 20 Feet from Stardom yeah. came out about 2013. Um, and yeah, I mean, that that was a film that, you know, showcased people like Darlene Love, who has had hits, you know, as the voice of, of some of those big uh, Phil Spector records. But uh, Mary Clayton, who I think, I think Mary Clayton was the one who sang on Gimme Shelter by the Stones, which yeah. is just like un- unbelievable. <laughs> but the film was profiling... Um, these background singers and, and I don't know, maybe the term background singers isn't great. It sounds a little, but you stand back there. Yeah. Uh, but 
what, backing vocals. What should they be? Yeah, backing vocals. Yeah, maybe. Secondary, but yeah, I don't know. That what, sounds worse. Yeah, it actually. sounds worse. Yeah. yeah, you who are like a singer, but you get to stand <laughs> back there in the dark. Uh, but no, the the film is great. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure any of our listeners have probably seen it. But if you've not, you should de- definitely check out 20 Feet from Stardom. Uh, my memory of watching that is I went and saw it when it was new, when it first came out. I saw it in the theater. And uh, I was um, with my wife on a Saturday. We'd seen it Friday night. And my wife uh, had wanted to go to Ross, uh, where you can dress for less. I don't right, know if you, sure. if you knew that. I'm um, aware of that. But uh, she wanted to go into Ross and do some shopping. And I'm like, I'm going to stand out here for a minute and, and, you know, call my folks and catch up with them, see what's up. So I'm standing outside of Ross and I'm talking to my mom and dad and, and, and I'm saying, yeah, Mel and I watched this great film last night called 20 feet from stardom. And it's about these people who have just made these incredible careers, uh, you know, singing background vocals for people like Ray Charles or whoever. And, but you know, for whatever reason, they just never made it. And then someone taps me on the shoulder and there's this older woman standing there who has overheard me. And I'm like, hello. And she goes, <laughs> she goes, baby, I just overheard your conversation. If you sing him for Ray Charles, you made it. <laughs> I was like, yes, ma'am. <laughs> See, well, she's got a good point. That kind of s- speaks to my point. I mean, you just sort of think that that spot behind, you know, the, the background singer's mic is is maybe a destination. Yeah. But I think for many artists, it's it's just like a way station on the way to greater things. Um, you know, you I imagine that Sheryl Crow was writing her own songs in the yeah. hotel room. Yeah. On tour with Michael Jackson. Yeah. Before she put on the sequins and the hairspray and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, Mariah Carey, uh, I think, did some some backup singing. I even saw that Whitney Houston uh, sang backup for Lou Rawls at one point. Yeah, and Shaka Khan when she was a teenager. Wow. Yeah. I mean, sitting there behind Lou Rawls, who Lou Rawls is a great artist, and and but not somebody you consider like a, a vocal acrobat. Right. Um, and it's just amazing to think that he's kind of up there just like slyly slinking through his songs, you know, and behind him right. is just a nuclear weapon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, because of like Whitney Houston had never made it. If Cheryl Crow had never made it, you know, yeah. uh, we, it, they would still be people with this amazing story. Lou that, Rawls would have had to sing I Will Always Love You and it would be a really different... <laughs> it would have been a very different... <laughs> and, uh, uh, <laughs> so, but, you know, they would have still had like these amazing careers yeah. at, at touring with these incredible artists and there's probably a ton of amazing vocalists who have made an incredible life for themselves who haven't gotten that shot, haven't gotten the, their time in the spotlight or the record deal or whatever. And it, it says something too, I think just about how, um, if you've got music in you, like you're going to, you're going to do it. You're going to find a way to make it happen. And yeah. and I'd say the same for songwriting too. It's like, well, if you're a songwriter, then you might write 200 songs that no one ever hears, but you got to do it. Yeah. And it's like, if you're a singer, you might never get that record deal. You might never even get a gig, you know, having the opportunity to sing backup for somebody. But right. you know, if you do like, that's a huge thing. That's a huge career, you know, but I think we all kind of grow up with that thing of like, man, I'm going to be, on MTV, I'm going to be, well, nowadays, no one does that thing. But when we were kids, like, I'm going to be on MTV, I'm going to be in the spotlight. And, you know, you you find your way and you you make your way into the world of music because you love it. And then, you know, one day you wake up and you're like, uh, oh, I guess I podcast about music. I guess I'm not on MTV. Uh, (laughs) But I'm still going to be involved in it somehow because, man, I love it. You know, there's also another side to this whole, you know, thing we're talking about, which is the artist who becomes famous and then becomes a background singer. Okay. Of course, I'm talking about Michael McDonald, who, who who rose to prominence with the Doobie Brothers in the 70s. Right. And then started showing up in the background of everybody's 80s records. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, I feel like Emilia Harris has that similar career trajectory. Yeah. Like, established herself, became very well known, still is a very well known artist, but like, she makes the rounds on the background vocals and it's an unmistakable voice. And she's a great harmony singer. It could be one of those things where it's like, but this was my dream. Yeah, my dream was to be a backup singer, <laughs> but this this you know solo thing got in the way. Yeah, and I just I'm just trying to get back <laughs> to my first love, uh, yeah. and become you know the 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 Michael McDonald ubiquitous yeah. '80s background voice. It's all he ever wanted. So yeah, thanks to Kenny Loggins and Christopher Cross and a host <laughs> of other artists for finally giving Michael McDonald a chance to be the singer he wanted to be. His dream was finally realized. Part two. Once again, our guest is seven-time Grammy nominee and 1997 Best New Artist Grammy winner, Paula Cole. 
She joins us to chat about her early work with Peter Gabriel, her monster hits, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone and I Don't Want to Wait, her work as an instructor for the Berklee College of Music, and her ongoing musical development, including her latest album, American Quilt. Paula, welcome to Songcraft. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Scott. That's great uh, speaking with you. There's something about you that I recently learned um, that you've actually been doing for years. I didn't realize, but you actually are uh, a teacher at Berkeley College of Music. How have your experiences throughout your career brought you to a place where you felt like you really wanted to connect with the next generation, so to speak? Mm, lot to say about that. I mean, I've been I've been at Berkeley College of Music, which is my alma mater. Uh, I've been professor for seven years, but now I'm in my second year of the role as like a visiting scholar, which mm-hmm. uh, allows me to really go back out on the road a little more and return to my my fuller career some more because I raise children and mm-hmm. they're out of the nest and it's all coinciding with that. And I'm able to stretch my wings a little more. And I really appreciate that. I've just returned from the road and it was fantastic. Um, And yes, I do. I I do appreciate learning from younger generations. Uh, I think my writing is the most specialized thing that I do and kind of the wisest part of myself that I can offer to people. And I look at it as a very um, loving kind of parental process almost with a younger generation who are different and have different needs and different vocabulary. And I learn from them. So I want to steer them into the most holistic, positive experiences that I can kind of help them on their path with while I'm with them. Um, You know, everybody's trajectory within the music business, God knows where that's going to go. Um, because talent is but a small part of it, right? And um, so much of it is persistence um, and grit and like entrepreneurial skill or connections. There's so many other aspects to it. But while I'm on this this path with them, we go into what I like to focus on is more the artistry of it. And and I, I aspire to be really on the artistic side of my songwriting. And that means sometimes I have a fallow season, like John Lennon called it, like periods where I don't write and I'm gentle with myself about it. Hmm. Or um, I'm not really a behind the scenes writer, although I admire that craft a lot. I really, really admire it. But I uh, am a wicked introvert and I'm someone who like thinks about it a lot and thinks about it as an artistic process and highly personal autobiographical process, one in which you can weave social justice writing. So I I like to present that almost like a writing out your life process. Hmm. You know, you you mentioned that Berkeley is your alma mater uh, and Mm. you studied there. And, uh, you know, after that point, then then you moved to San Francisco and started writing songs and making demos of your own. You know, when you're in school, particularly in a, a creative educational environment, You've got this community around you, and, the, and it can be a supportive community, a, a little audience here and there when you're going to play, and you've got competition right around you. And then all of a sudden, you're out there on your own. And what, what was it that kind of said to you, I can do this? Outside of this supportive community, this challenging community, um, what was it about what you were doing, the songs you were writing at the time that said, I think this is going to work? Well, I went to Berkeley out of high school, straight out of high school. Um, coming from like the tip of an island on the, the North shore of Massachusetts, growing, growing up with fishing families. And it was very isolated. Um, and I went to Berkeley and I found community and I found purpose, but I thought I was going to be a jazz singer. Hmm. Like I was um, studying horn solos and, you know, I wanted to be like a vocal improviser. And, and I was going along that path, you know, sometimes with success, sometimes not. And I think like the writing was always there because I, I was, playing around with it in high school. But then I found myself um, kind of having breakdowns, which were breakthroughs. And I went into therapy and uh, that process of listening to myself 
and kind of believing that my feelings and my thoughts were worthy led to me writing because I couldn't keep singing these songs that were written by men in the 1950s. Like I just, I needed lyrical freedom to talk about what was happening inside of myself. Hmm. So I started writing because I just needed a therapeutic process. And it was like the universe just kept saying, yes, yes. Like uh, there were affirmations. I was offered a record deal while while I was still in college for my very first um, exploration into songwriting. I was using the Berkeley studios for those demos and uh, it it came very fast and easy. And I thought like that kind of came too fast and easy. I I don't think that's the work I want to put into the world just yet. So I said, no, which people literally screamed at me and told me I was crazy for doing, (laughs) (laughs) but I didn't feel ready. And so I, I went back to waitressing (laughs) at the MIT faculty club and I was like singing weddings. And then I moved to San Francisco, like you said, and I was working at the Tassajara bakery, like scrubbing pots, working the cash register, baking things and finding myself. And I don't know why, like maybe it's because my mom was an artist and she trusted her process. And I had that example of someone trusting their process. Um, But I felt like I need to write and I need to write my truths. Mm. And I knew it sucked washing dishes and being a waitress. And I really wanted to um, make my way into the music business, but it had to be the right way. I felt like yeah. my work had to be ready. So I just um, began setting up a studio, like every little bit of money I could scrape together. I would, I literally bought like a TSR eight, a reel to reel, you know, mm. um, eight inch tape machine and recorded. And I got some of the earliest programs like vision I was using to record demos and I was writing, I was living in a loft above a gas station on the corner of South Van Ness and 17th. And uh, in my bedroom, I was just writing. And my boyfriend at the time was a brilliant like producer who never got his dues, sadly. He died a couple of years ago, but um, his name was Mark Hutchins and he was working on the Stephen Colbert show when he died. But uh, he and I, we were making beautiful, rough recordings together. And I just felt true to that process. It was like the commercialism was second. And uh, I was putting my feelings into those songs, writing about my past, writing about my present, writing about the AIDS epidemic that was happening in the early 90s in San Francisco. It was just very natural. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew that the path that I thought I had started you know, at music school, that was radically different anyway. That was me being a jazz singer. And uh, so this was all very exploratory. And I just trusted it, even though I was terrified. You know, I was 23 and living on the edge. Like I was wow. eating one burrito a day, half for lunch and half for dinner because <laughs> yeah. it was $2.15. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so yeah, it was terrifying, but um I had good people around me and I just trusted it. It was faith. It really was. It's interesting that you talk about um, you started writing songs because you weren't connecting with, you know, maybe the the great American songbook or or whatever, you know, jazz uh, things that you were singing. I find that really fascinating because I feel like we talk to a lot of people who start singing because they're songwriters and they've got these songs in them and then they just sort of figure out how to become a singer to deliver those songs. But I find that really fascinating that you came to it first as a singer, but that there was a disconnect for you um, with the material that you were singing. So you needed to essentially come up with music that was true to yourself and true to your own experience in order to emotionally connect with it, to be the best vocalist that you could. It's a little bit of um of an inverse of what we typically hear from songwriters. Yeah, it's interesting. And it was a fork in the road. And part of me never stopped loving standards. I mean, that's where I lived. And my dad was an all around musician. Mostly he was a bass player in a polka band on weekends when I was a small child. Uh, But so he'd play upright and electric and he would play banjo and guitar and piano and harmonica, everything, everything. And he would play all these styles. And I grew up with folk fake books and you know standard real books and hearing duke ellington and then 
old folk songs that are hundreds of years old. I, I heard it all. I, I, I have it all in my heart. It's a part of my collective unconsciousness. It definitely is. And I think the fork came when I needed to express my personal self so that I could kind of be a healed and whole woman in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and being a woman that I did, you know, a lot of those songs were ill-fitting to me, uh, just like a man's perspective on being a woman, uh, you yeah. know, from the musicals, they're really kind of trite or like uh, patronizing <laughs> lyrics sometimes, and sometimes they're genius, but I never stopped loving them. So, you know, here I am with this jazz background and love for the standards. So I needed to initially go about it as my own writer so that I could kind of establish myself and heal myself through my own music. But then I did come back to it, you know, late, much later on, I recorded, I've recorded two albums of classics, um, my Mm. ballads album and the last one, which is called American Quilt. And they're all recordings of standards, whether they be more rootsy or folky or bluesy or jazzy. To me, it's all like one beautiful cauldron that's American music. And, uh, I just needed to do it my way, the right at the right pace, and I wanted the covers albums to be folksy and more guitar based, not yeah. like a slick right. jazz covers album, rather really folksy, you know. You know, um, thinking a bit about about those early days, and you know, when you look at someone's career, uh, it can just sort of read like a highlight reel sometimes, and you know, we're, yeah. we're getting the stories about the the split burrito. You know, which is the real life stuff in between these things. And but if you just look at it as a highlight reel, you go, okay, Berkeley, Peter Gabriel, and it doesn't quite work like that. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, I'm I'm sort of curious as to as to what was the what was the what seems like the giant leap from you know the the home demos to the world tour with with an artist like Peter Gabriel, and then to to then continue on to that question being around those songs and that type of songwriter, what was that like as, as part of your developmental stage? Mm. That time of not being noticed and working in a bakery and recording demos in my bedroom in San Francisco was really very important because I amassed a catalog. I amassed songs and um, the big generative process was the writing and the recording of the demos. And that's what leaps, um, you know, just making demos in my bedroom to being with Peter Gabriel is me having all that content. So while I was recording that and getting better at it and the demos are sounding better, um, you have something to give somebody. And then I met who would be my future manager. His name is Carter and he's featured in the new Tina documentary. If you, if you see that you'll see and hear Carter and how he championed Tina Turner's return. Very, very moving and very special man. Again, like I lost him. I've lost people in my life. So Carter is no longer on the planet either. I miss him every day. Um, mm. He was my first manager and he cared about songs. He was an A&R man at um, Capitol, kind of in their eight, heyday in the eighties. Mm. Right. And um he was a song man. He wrote incense and peppermints. <laughs> oh, wow. and, yeah. And uh, he should be an interview on your podcast too. If you're <laughs> He's written a lot of like beautiful song. Like, uh, Don't call us. We'll call you. And mm. he helped uh, the, the motels with them. Um, Take the L out of lover and it's over like really beautiful. He was huh. an English major and yeah. he was my first manager and he loved my writing. And we met in San Francisco. I met him when I was, working at the Tassajara bakery and he asked to hear some of my demos and they were, I guess, good enough that he could actually hear the song through the production and, and he wanted to work with me. And so it was Carter who took those demos and shopped them. And I got my first deal. Kate Hyman signed me to Imago. This is when Henry Rollins and Amy Mann were there. And uh, so I started on that boutique label and and I've been with a whole bunch of other majors since, but um, it was there I got my start. That first album with Imago, I recorded with Kevin Killen, who had worked with Peter Gabriel. And it's all hmm. word of mouth. Word of mouth is the best wow. promotion, always. Right. So we made Harbinger, my first album, 
Kevin produced it. I learned so much from Kevin, brilliant engineer. And uh, he mixed and recorded so Peter's album, so Daniel and Juan, Peter Gabriel. And he recommended Peter listen to my first album, even though it wasn't released. And Peter did. And it was just luck of timing because Sinead O'Connor uh, was leaving his Secret World live tour. And he was looking for someone to fill that, that important place. I mean, yes, it was background vocals, but it was also duets on epic songs that sure. I Blood love. Eden, don't give up. Yeah. You know, I love Peter Gabriel's music so much, and I loved it so much then. It was such an honor. So he heard it and just, just committed to it just after hearing. And he left me a voice recorded memo on, on the little real real cassette you know <laughs> voice recorded recorder thing that we used to have back in the day <laughs> anyway um yeah he just left me a message literally asking me to join the tour so that's when things just started sparking like big sparks wow peter i'd call back peter i spoke to him on the phone we talked through the music and then i talked to his director about the business and then i flew to germany on Halloween of 1993, I had like literally half a rehearsal. We didn't even do all the tunes. And my first song with him was Don't Give Up in the Rehearsal. And then I was thrown out in front of 16,000 Germans in Mannheim. That night. And then I joined the tour and that that video that, you know, won a Grammy and all that with the Secret World Live was done just days after I joined. Amazing. So I was ready because I loved the music. I loved his artistry. I had seen the tour because I was a fan. That that started that people started noticing, and then my record company used that like, "Hey, this is the the woman you saw on the Secret World Live tour." And then Harbinger came out, and it did well, like on the AAA radio scene with like Adult Alternative and I Am So Ordinary was my first single. It was a black and white video. I had really short hair and nose mm -hmm. ring, and it, I just started touring the states in a cadillac like a rented cadillac because it was big and the boot was big enough to fit the pa and i would just huh. go around with my boyfriend guitar player and we'd set up pa in coffee houses and it might be five people listening to us but it, you know we began building community that way and then i'd fly off and play arenas with peter and then I'd fly back home and i'd tour around America and sing for 10 wow. people and then Woodstock, <laughs> you know, over a quarter That's of a incredible. million people and so on and so forth. So you start building it and you build community and it's really about the message and the love and the connection. And the, it all comes down to the song, I think. And she is your holy Mary and I am so ordinary and you can use me if you Like an old shoe. She looks like me, but a bit prettier. She's a skater and a ballet dancer. I saw her on your motor. It's interesting looking at Harbinger and this fire, the follow-up record, which was a huge, you know, commercial breakthrough. Um, and even, you know, moving on to your third album, Amen. I mean, these are the, the first several albums were completely um, solo written. You don't see a lot of collaborative songwriting until we get a little later into the catalog. And that's really fascinating to me because in those early days, as you were writing, you know, you often see people kind of gravitate towards um co-writing or or you see partnerships with um maybe a producer it kind of becomes a, a writer or whatever but you were very much a self-contained um songwriter at that point and now that you kind of look back on your career having done it both ways having written 
probably most of your material solo, but also having collaborated as well, um, for you is, is the process different, um, when you're working with somebody else versus working solo? Does that almost feel like two different processes to you as a writer? Oh, definitely very different. And I guess I've been alone in a room so much that it's the way that I do it and the way I'm comfortable. Um, I didn't know differently. And yes, it's true. Those first three albums are entirely self-written. I didn't think of that. So you mentioned it. I mean, it's been mentioned to me, but I don't think of that too much. It's just my natural process. Hmm. Again, I, when I take the Myers-Briggs, I'm, I test very, very highly as an introvert. It's natural hmm. for me to seek that space. And uh, then I took a seven and a half year hiatus from the music business and and I was going through a lot with a divorce and um, getting custody of my daughter and moving on to um, being in the music business again, if they would have me, because I left my labels and I just didn't know what it would be. Yeah. Um, I didn't know if people were still there for me. Um, and that's when I worked with producer Bobby Columbia, who um uh, I had been, you know, I, I was a singer occasionally through the, the hiatus, like I sang on four Chris Bode albums. I was, and I saw, I, um, like other jazz artists, interestingly, I, I sang, people started hearing my voice on those standards, but I wasn't writing, I wasn't generating, I was a mother and I needed help. I needed help because my confidence was like down in my socks, you know, I didn't know if people would be there for me. I didn't know what the business was. I left Carter. I, um, I just, so Bobby did help me get back out into the world and his mode, his modus operandi was connecting me with writers. And that was the first time I had that experience really. Um, and that's very different. It's very different. Um, and I found that I liked it best when I could take ideas, maybe they were recorded or maybe we were in a room together and I remembered the core change or something. And then I would take it home and I would have my privacy. Cause I, I feel like under the gun to be creative, you know, it's, it, that is yeah. hard. And I've done that. Right. Like you write a, a song together in three hours kind of thing. Some people are great at that, but I feel very shy about it. So I, I really do like taking it home and thinking about it and then falling asleep and waking up with an idea and taking my time with it. So that there's a lot of co-writes on my first album out of hiatus. That was courage. Hmm. Um, and I learned a lot. I learned, like I, I worked with interesting people like Dean parks on guitar and yeah. Pat Leonard, who's a producer mostly, but a writer too. And um, just, it was very interesting, but it also underscored that I, I like writing alone the most. Hmm. I really do. I, and I wanted to get back to, writing solo and producing solo um i just feel like those are the most honest albums the most yeah. self-revealing albums that i make yeah and that's just my cup of tea you know I, and everyone has their how they like to work best and that's how i like to work best and some people might like my co-writes or the produced stuff more but i really like the more raw rootsy hmm. raggedy stuff <laughs> There was something you said earlier where you mentioned John Lennon and and I've been thinking about John Lennon a number of times with different things you've said today. You know, it, there was an artist who who knew what it took to be commercial and then got to a point where I said, you know what, I just want to write about Yoko and I want to write about my home life and I want to write about bacon bread. And I want to write about my kids. Um, and, you know, it, they were personal songs born from his own experience. And yet he knew so much about how to write a melody that, you know, John Lennon kind of couldn't help being commercial. And in, in the 90s, I think we entered an era where it was okay to be introspective and you could still be commercial. Um, you know, a lot of songs, you know, we would hear Eddie Vedder talk about his home life growing up and about his parents' divorce, and that ended up on the radio. Um, and songs like Where Have All the Cowboys Gone and I Don't Want to Wait, you know, those are not the Macarena. Those are, those are songs that became huge hits, but they felt introspective, they felt gutsy, they felt real, and they felt raw. So this is all coming to a question. And the question is, when you're writing those songs and you're, you know, you want to be successful, you want people to hear your music, but you also want to be honest. Where was kind of your, you know, your measure of what made a song feel like it was going to work? Not just that it felt like it was honest to you, but hey, this is something I bet the label's going to like. 
Mm, that's an interesting sensibility that, um, you know, for a while I felt like I had a good sense of that in the nineties. Um, I uh, had a sense about where have all the cowboys gone as a song because it was overlooked. It was one of those songs I wrote in my loft in San Francisco over the gas station. Hmm. And there was an early demo of it that like had a rumba feel and everyone passed it over because of that, probably because of that different feel. Yeah. And I, and I had a sense about it. And how do you know and how to have that sense? How do you hone that sense? I mean, that's, that's a big question. That's an awesome yeah. question. Um, but I did have a sense about it and I thought, I want to like a Ringo Starr feel like uh, on the reprise of Sergeant Pepper's one, two, three, four, doom, 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 yeah. you know, and all that crowd noise. Ah, oh, like the producer in me thought I want that. I want that beat and I want the crowd noise. And so we did that and with my beautiful drummer, Jay Bellarose, who's become like T-Bone Burnett's right hand, mm. you know, since everybody yeah. else discovered him, Jay's just, he's been on, on a lot of modern music. Uh, but um, so that's Jay on that beautiful, simple, simple feel that's so relatable. And then crowd noise, which is like, ah, step into the club, you know, ah, mm. you're with people. It feels comforting. And there's no bass. And that was like a conscious effort, like based on um, just my sensibility of listening to the radio and realizing mm. bass doesn't necessarily transpire very well in the car which is where a lot of people listen and i loved the way when doves cry sounded by prince and the way there was no bass and i just thought i don't hear bass on this track it would make it sound like a country song and i want it to be something else so we didn't have bass and uh yeah and then i and then i heard those catchy bvs right as the hook that's the hook and then giving it that splendiferous bridge where like you know, the pedal steel branches out, you have a major seven chord, it just feels like, ah, and it mm. gives the real melancholy of the woman's perspective. So it was like such a, a buildup and a combination of sensibilities of me listening to the radio, me as a producer, me loving music, worshiping at the altar of music and having sensibility about music and realizing that I think there's something special in the song, going to redemo it. Then when I redemoed it, everyone got happy about it. And then when I recorded it, I, I put a lot of time and attention into that track just to make sure, like, listen to it on a lot of different speakers. enough too like we never tuned our instruments <laughs> so it's not what? a440 it's like a442 or something and and i think <laughs> even that's kind of magic like it's not <laughs> it's not black or white you know it's yeah. not a perfect pitch it's like in the cracks it's not entirely feminist it's not entirely tammy wynette you know it's like and we have people on both sides of the political fence liking that song you know yeah. from feminists to rush limbo and it's like it's very misunderstood, but yet it's like encapsulates a lot. Mm. So interesting. Um, so there, that was really like a divination and a, and a happy, happy accident. Mm. I think like in regards to like having a sensibility of what works on the radio. Um, yeah, that's, that's a big question. And uh, John Lennon definitely did. And I think his chord changes are so special. Like I love, I love his chord changes. Mm. Um, like actually that song love like that I, and his, his album, the, the plastic Ono band album is absolutely one of my all time, most inspirational albums, yeah. him at 30 turning 30 in the studio, him 
not wanting to sing, I want to hold your hand anymore, him going through primal scream therapy and finding Yoko and wanting to sing autobiographically and write autobiographically. And it was pretty much self-produced because Phil Spector never showed up. Thank goodness. And (laughs) it's just so raw. And uh, when he's telling everyone the dream is over. Yeah, exactly. You know, (laughs) let's move on. It's so beautiful. I love him so much. You know, he's absolutely one of my big, heroes and influences the autobiography of it the rawness of it so um yeah i don't know even where to launch in about pop sensibility yeah but i love music and i listen to all kinds of music and sometimes what's on the radio really horrifies me or right i i don't relate uh, or and or yeah. it seems like there's fads that come and go so i'll just kind of detach a little bit and listen to the masters and um, Hmm. then i get interested again sometimes what's on the radio and right you know you know it's interesting to me um when you put out that first record when you put out harbinger you know there were singles like i am so ordinary which you mentioned and in bethlehem and those that was a record i think that got some more attention after the fact, after this fire, you know, blew up and was, was huge. Um, but coming into the process for this fire, um, you know, you weren't walking into that situation with kind of this, like a big pile of hits, you know, behind you. Um, and you produced the album completely solo, wrote all the songs solo. I mean, this was very much your vision. And I feel like that's a, a fairly rare thing um, for labels um, to take a, an artist who is still not super well known um, and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to trust you. We're going to give you the reins, like go enact your vision. And I feel like oftentimes the label is more like we got to hover, we got to bring in, you know, 15 super producers. We got to over, you know, control this process. But I'm thinking about that and thinking about, you know, the fact, for instance, that there's no base on where have all the cowboys gone. Was that the sort of thing where you had label people in your ear questioning you and going, well, hey, why won't you put a base on this? Songs have base on it. Or did they fully give you the the freedom to just say, hey, do do your vision and we're not going to mess with it? Who knows what cowboys would have been like had there been a producer. But um, <laughs> I I loved working with Kevin Killen. And then there was a nat- natural conclusion to that. We, we actually started an attempt of the first, I'm sorry, of the second album, my second album together. And we spent half the budget together and it wasn't, it just wasn't feeling right. Like we were somehow ha- having two different concepts of what the album was. And I realized that I was working really hard to try to convey my vision to be then kind of reinterpreted to tape. And I just wanted the vision to go straight to tape. And I um, I realized it was just, it was just so difficult. And um, I also saw that my, my drummer, you know, Jay, who I've been playing with since I was 19, um, it just, he was unhappy and I needed to protect him and I needed to protect the music. And it was really hard because uh, there were some hard feelings all around. Hmm. And also it was the culture of producers with they even producers had managers and labels usually wouldn't let women produce themselves. It just wasn't done. I didn't even realize how it wasn't done. I knew that producers were kind of stars and they had managers and labels were always shopping producers and connecting, especially female artists with producers. But um, I felt like, I could do this. It just makes sense. Like the little voice in my heart and in my head was telling me that it makes more sense. You could be free. I wanted so badly to close that studio door on everybody. I just wanted to protect the music, protect the musicians, protect the songs. And, um, and so breaking that news was really hard. I mean, I love and respect Kevin so much, but I, you know, we had a, an impasse for a while and, also, the other guitar player that I was working with at the time, you know, there, it was like a breakup. It was, it was really hard. So I had to kind of collect the pieces. And Warner Brothers was pretty cool about it. 
it was the Imago side that was not cool and hard. Mm, and uh-huh. I kept having to slice the budget, slice the budget, find, find tape at cost, find studio, get, make deals, you know, studio time that was uh, like deals and record everything really fast. So we made this fire on less than half a budget. I came in under budget and we, Jay and I, God, we did all the songs on this fire. I I had the sequence in my head. So we recorded them back to front. So we started with, I don't want to wait, which is the first song we ever tracked. And then all the way to tiger, the first, you know, like back to front. Um, We tracked the piano, the drums, the percussion, the keyboards, because I put down some Juno, um, all the background vocals and the lead vocals in a day and a half, which is insane. It's insane, but we had no time. We didn't have money. And Jay and I were like hand in glove. We've been playing together for years and we've played together for years since. Um, And he's my soulmate musically. So um, we just went in and recorded those songs and did our overdubs and then we had greg lease i flew him in from los angeles i had heard him play on katie lang's ingenue album and i thought who the fuck is that <laughs> that's so beautiful <laughs> you know like that that pedal steel all over ingenue yeah. was like who is that gorgeousness and i i yeah. needed a guitar player and i wanted someone to give me that some kind of rich sound beautiful mm-hmm. sound so i talked to greg over the phone and we talked the music sent him the demos and told him roughly what i was thinking he flew in he did his bits in three days wow and i did that you know comping him is a lot of work because he's like he's like chauncey gardner and being there he just kind of goes Hmm. you know (laughs) and so you just have to press record as soon as he walks into the room and just you know and then you have to make sense of it later with a million comping so that that where of all the cowboys guitar comp woo that's like me up at three in the morning comping greg lease that's like a lot and um but he's brilliant he's genius and then tony levin who i'd worked with with peter gabriel came in and did his bits like in a day and then we went to mix you know um and i i think i added like one or two more little things in the mixing sessions like i added the background vocals for i don't want to wait um the do 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 that little iconic thing was like during the mix, like, "Mm, I think I think I want to add a little background bubble. Yeah, I just felt insular and protective of the music. And I just really, really wanted to get my vision out. And I didn't know it was going to be huge. I wasn't aiming for that. I just knew that um, I wanted I wanted to do it my own way, I guess. And that's what, what well, happened. First of all, thank you for that reference to one of the great underappreciated moments in Peter Sellers' career with being there. <laughs> uh, appreciate that. Um, that was awesome. Um, you know, and I know we have a couple more decades of beautiful music to get to, but I, I did have one more question about uh, this fire, and I think our listeners would uh, would hold me in contempt if I didn't ask a little bit more about I Don't Want to Wait. And in particular, I want to ask you, you know, you've described yourself multiple times as an introvert, and then there's this moment when your music kind of begins to belong to everyone, um, and particularly a song that's become the theme song of a huge television show. And people then will interpret the lyrics and everything about it to be associated with this show, which I would imagine can be. It's an obvious blessing. But, you know, when you have something in mind when you write the song, you're like, well, that's kind of not what I meant. How did it feel as an introvert creator to go into a place where everyone felt like they had ownership of your music? Yeah, it starts becoming something else. You put your work, you know, you've worked hard on your little work of art. And, you know, I think more of me expected it just to kind of maybe get a little, a few spins on AAA radio, <laughs> but not like do, yeah. do all that. And it's, it's gobsmacking 
it's alarming and it's fantastic at times that it becomes known by so many people and then loved and and kind of appropriated by people and it's theirs um so yes it's misinterpreted i mean i had that experience first with cowboys that was so interesting it was like an anthropological journey looking at humanity it really is in the eye of the beholder isn't it so i don't want to wait um it first was a success on radio like it was number one on a couple of formats um the video was kind of a bust because uh and i think that kind of disassociated the song with me the artist because the video was me in all these different costumes in different centuries you know it was this big grand idea but people didn't really see me so um vh1 didn't want to play it and we had to they had to recut a different video and so then mark seliger took his name off of it and uh and i'm then it's just me like in this little outfit like you know, dancing in front of a fan, like it doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> um, it's just, so I think there was a disassociation, like people knew the song and not the artist because of what happened mm-hmm. with the video. And then, uh, and then it got scooped up by this television show that, you know, at the time I, no one knew of, cause it was just a pilot and Carter asked me, you know, do you, I think it'd be a good idea. Why don't you talk to this guy? His name is Kevin Williamson. He's made this, this new drama called Dawson's Creek and he wants to use, I don't want to wait. And I think you should take the call. And, and Kevin was very, very nice and supportive and loved the music. And I said, okay, let's give it a shot. And then bang, <laughs> it was so wow. huge. Like it was so much huger than my song and it stayed huge for so many seasons that then it ushered in a new generation who didn't even know like me or my backstory. So then it takes on a different life and the song has a different life and it continued. And then the song was dropped for a while. Like some executive decided to drop it, like to get a free song. And that was, I, you know, that was met with mixed results. And yeah. eventually the show made a deal with me and asked me for the song back you know, which is happy for me. But I think in the long run, like in the long run, in the moment you get upset and little ups and downs constantly in the music business, but you have to stay calm and you have to stay wise and you have to look long and take this easy path of the tortoise, you know? And that's like in the past, I would get upset very easily and I probably still do, but I think of Emmylou Harris and when I met her during my hiatus and how I was wanting to leave the music business, she's like, no, 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 you can't. It just happened too fast. She said, I was really lucky. It was a nice, even plateau for me. So I think of that a lot. I think of just the wisdom of that. People will f- forget about you if you have a really, really huge hit and, and you're an introvert and you're traumatized by the attention, even though it's delightful, it'll go yeah. away. <laughs> trust me it'll go away (laughs) and and then you know with our digital age if the music hopefully is good hopefully people will find you again which is happening to me now and I'm so grateful for that I'm grateful for people finding me now whether it's through Dawson's Creek or through just the web you know just digital Mm -hmm. reality um I think and me like taking the path of the tortoise and continuing to release independently and staying yeah. prolific and staying, having faith about my process and this voice that I have inside, yeah. honoring it and making music, like people find me again. And that's cool. It's interesting to me after you took your hiatus and, and you did come back uh, with that Courage record, which we talked about a little bit ago and, and Ithaca, which followed that up. Um, but your sixth studio album, Raven, um, when that record came out, it came out on your own label, um, six, seven, five. And, uh, I believe that record was partially funded, um, via Kickstarter, which creates this interesting relationship with the artist and, and the fans and the fans actually become, you know, very literally invested in the project. And, um, you know, I would imagine that that feels like a much more, um, connected, uh, 
process rather than kind of going off in the in the studio and doing your thing and then the album comes out and everybody gets to hear it you know you're you're doing something where people feel like participants in the process and mm-hmm. as a songwriter and a creator I'd be interested to um, hear what impact that had on your process of just knowing that you you almost are making this in a way a, a communal experience for the fans yes it is and Although I had it largely recorded, I did have some final touches left and then all of the mixing and mastering and, and the, the marketing, which is the most expensive. Um, and you have to be trustworthy and you have to be good to your word. You come together, you create team energy when you have to do like a fund me campaign and anyone that m- might've loved you, the real fans, they're gonna be there for you. And you don't need as many as you think um, I was moved by, you know, Amanda Palmer's um, kick, first Kickstarter campaign that was that was so wildly successful. And it made me realize, like, I'm going to do this and then I can own my master's and I can have freedom in the studio. And I'm I'm going to be really good to my word, true to my word and good with people's money. And I'm, you know, going to create uh, rewards that um, are fun and make people connected to me and create community. So then you find the next time you go around that they're there again for you. It's very Mm. community building, but you have to be a hard worker. It's a lot of work to do that on the back end, all the mail outs and fulfilling all the pledges, right? It's a lot of work. Um, And I'm not going to skip, like I I have to be good to my word. Um, You know, my dad was this Eagle Scout New Englander and I'm like, I want to be good to my word. (laughs) So yeah, you have to, you have to come through and then it sets you up with good community if you're willing to work like that and work hard. And then it was happy. I've I've released independently quite prolifically on the 675 label. The new one, it's a distribution deal with um, a licensing deal, I should say with BMG. American Quilt is um, with BMG, but I'm still on my 675 label and I'll get that, those masters back. And this is, I feel like this is the way I want to work. And sometimes the audience size is smaller in my career. And sometimes it's been larger. It kind of ebbs and flows. And if I always keep like the money and the business separate from the art, I think I'm, I'm okay. Um, of course, you know, uh, I'm not like, I, I feel like I'm still kind of niche where I am. I'd like it to expand a little more yeah. just so that the touring is a little more comfortable um, again. But I don't, yeah, I don't need to be huge. Like, and I don't, I'm just going to be true to myself. You know, when I look at the, at the last few albums kind of as an overview and, and I see like, there's this, each one of them kind of has its own character. You know, you, you would have one, you know, going back that, that would be kind of a jazz theme. And then you, with Ithaca, you had kind of a return to that folk rock sound. Um, you know, uh, Seven is like an acoustic quartet that was recorded live. You know, every one of these has its own kind of feel. Revolution has got kind of a, a socio-political element to it. Sister gonna wake up and shake the sky with the cries. She's gonna rise, she's gonna rise, she's gonna rise. Sister gonna get up and wipe her tears from her eyes. She's gonna rise, she's gonna rise, she's gonna rise. Are these things that when you find, you know, I, I want to challenge myself to do something different than I did in the last record. Okay, I covered that. Now I want to move into this territory. Or some of that when you, or that you're actually hearing from the fans that, hey, man, we'd love to hear you do more of this. I love that last jazz record. Can we get another one? You know, how does their interaction play even into your creative process of how you're putting the songs and the record together? It, it matters to me. Um, I do take it in. Ultimately, it's my own call, you know, in the end. I, I listen, like I always listen to Jay, my musical writer, I'm Jay Bellarose, and I listen to my musicians like Chris Bruce on guitar or Ross Gallagher on bass. I listen to my tried and trusted inner circle for sure. Um, and I listen to fans like I recognize them. I know who my loyals are on the other side of the internet. And then when they, you know, sometimes they make very insightful comments 
because they're talking about like deep cuts. Mm. Um, and I read, you know, I, I, I read the feedback on my social media. I'm very involved in my social media. So sometimes they'll have fantastic ideas, you know, um, actually when I recorded the Bobby Gentry cover, Ode to Billy Joe, like that was, that was a fan suggestion. And I oh, thought wow. that's a great suggestion. She's brilliant. That was a B-side. She self-produced. Um, so and she, you know, soul writer and an introvert who left after she won the best new artist Grammy. <laughs> like, I feel wow. like a lot of kinship with Bobby, Bobby Gentry, but um, yeah, no, I, I definitely take some of their advice to heart. And then I'm like listening inspired to certain music and that informs me. Hmm. And then my age and where I'm at in my life, maybe with my personal experiences, it's very autobiographical writing. Yeah. So um, like I, I already have a sense of what the tone of my next album, I, which is number 12, what is going to be. Um, and I, I really, when I listen to seven, the acoustic album you mentioned, yeah. That that one really hits my heart in a good way. It's very personal. It's very spar sparse. And I want to kind of echo that again. We're lost and dying. to get highly personal with autobiographical writing again for my 12th album. I've started recording. I've done one collaboration with Jason Isbell and John Paul White. And I've mm -hmm. recorded four other songs down in Nashville with just Jay, myself, and an upright bass player, Victor Krauss, Allison's brother. And then um, I feel like I have, I feel pregnant with songs right now. I'm, like I need to go and write, and I know it's gonna be very personal. And that I want it to be a, a very acoustic album again. Oh. Hmm. You know, with the ballads album that you did in 2016 and the most recent record, American Quilt, those are cover albums. And you had mentioned them earlier, but the um, ballads record was more jazz oriented and, and American Quilt is more country blues, folk, <laughs> jazz, roots, whatever, Americana, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, it's a quote. Yeah, it's a, it's a quilt. quilt. It's a quilt. Um, but because you are a songwriter and because the majority of your career has been original songs rather than than doing cover songs, I'd be curious to know, having that songwriter sensibility, having a good song sense, um, how does that influence your choices when it comes to what you decide you're going to, to cover, particularly on American Quilt? Mm. I, I, I have loved going back to other people's songs, especially, you know, anonymously written folk songs with the simplest chord changes. I've loved going back to the blues and Bessie Smith and Janis Joplin singing Black Mountain Blues, for instance, how powerful the blues was for me, just that discovery of getting back to that most elemental music form um, and really it being about story and feelings. And um, I don't want my cleverness to get into my in my way. Hmm. I, I do appreciate going into other people's chord changes, like letting my hands go into new places, um, because we tend to write in the same tempos, keys, chord change, you know, chord changes and pro progressions. So I try to get myself out of those um, ruts. You know, maybe I'll write in a much more of a guitar picking tempo which on piano is a tempo you don't really write on on piano usually so I'll try to nudge myself out of keys in the same places like I think Tom White says like your hands are like old dogs they go to sleep in the same places like your hands go to the same wow. places and so I I like visiting other people's work because I learn and I think oh that's an interesting place to go 
So, um, and, and sometimes, you know, a song will come out of it because it, it's interesting. Um, but yes, it, the, these albums of covers, they gave me a period of rest as a writer and they brought me back to the truth of feelings and storytelling and, and looking to kind of great classic writers like John Prine and Bob Dylan, mm. and Bobby Gentry. Like, and I, 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 I feel that, well, Bob, I always have to say Bob Marley. He's one of my favorite writers, just mm. simple and so deep, um, personal, yet sociopolitical, like um, Marvin Gaye, more sophisticated, uh, but again, social, political, and personal, beautiful. Dolly Parton, it's a, it's a real mix, but I go to my favorite writers, Joni Mitchell. God, I can't not mention her. Yeah. Um, and they're with me, like these masters are with me in my heart. Oh God, I love them so. And um, I just wanna do good using them as a yardstick, as my yardstick. And it's really hard to do that. So as long as I think I can hopefully do well by these writers, and even if it only sells like a hundred copies, then I'll know I've done something good. And, and if it sells more than that, then that's good. I was, it was a beautiful experience writing with Jason Isbell um, and to kind of see eye to eye as a writer in that way, because I admire his writing so much. That was a beautiful yeah. experience. Um, and it was beautiful to be seen by him because people would put us in different you know, algorithms and genre lists and playlists and right, they would put yeah. us in different playlists, but we connected for a love of the writing and he saw me and I saw him and that was beautiful. I just, hmm. I just want to return to some really highly personal truth telling. That's where I'm at oh. right now. And the, yeah. the respite of the covers has kind of invigorated me to do that. Well, wow. very cool. Well, the most recent album uh, is American Quilt. We want to encourage our listeners to check that out. A great songwriter interpreting other great songwriters' music. And uh, you'll even get to hear Paula reigniting her passion to pursue some more original music that will be coming soon, which is great to hear. Um, so, Paula, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and, and sharing a bit about your writing process and your career. Um, we really appreciate it. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. 